Happy Mother's Day. If you're a mom in this place, will you just raise your hand? Can we just give it up for our moms? They're amazing. I love that video that talks about, you know, God's love is reflected in a mother's heart. It's so amazing how God, mom's comfort in it just reflects the comfort that God has for us. Welcome to City Life Suffolk tonight. Um, I am Stephanie White. I am a wife of Pastor Justin, who's our Suffolk campus pastor, and we've been here for about four months almost. Um, a lot of us have come from the Newport News campus, and we do want to say a special shout out to our Newport News campus tonight, who we're meeting in NRBC for the first time tonight. It's an amazing step for them. Just a huge answer to prayer over the years we've been praying to find a building for that campus, so it's amazing to be there for them. And shout out to Williamsburg. Jamie and Michelle are there. Sharon Thomas is speaking there tonight. And Vanessa speaking at our Newport News campus. So we're so excited. Anybody that's listening on podcast, hello to, hello to you. We wish you were here with us. I know a lot of people out of town this weekend for, for Mom's Day weekend, but we're so excited that you're here with us tonight. Um, so I just want to tell you guys a little bit about myself. If you don't know me super well, if you're newer to this campus, my name is Stephanie White. Um, me and Justin got married about almost six years ago, and we're really terrible with, like, anniversaries. Like, we don't know. We don't remember the month we got engaged or the month we started dating, which is good because both of us feel that way, so we're not pressured. But um, so I moved to Newport News when we got married, and I... Um, I started serving in the youth group with Justin, and then we were on year, or staff for four years there. And then we came here. When Pastor Fred first asked us about um, coming to be the Suffolk Campus Pastors, our, my initial reaction was, no, thank you. <laughs> but then I started to hear about all the amazing people that were going to be coming with us, and I knew that we could do it if we had a great team like you guys. So thank you to everyone that serves weekly. This this four-year transforms. I mean, if you've come in here before this stuff is set up, it looks like a totally different space. And we love that we can partner with churches in the area. All of our campuses par- partner with churches, so they meet on Saturday nights. And um, it's not just filling a space. Like, we're, we're meeting a need for the other churches as far as helping them with sound equipment. And we bring in new things. So it's, it's mutually beneficial for, for everyone, for both churches. So we're so decided, excited to be here. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk about something that is a little bit of a scary topic for some of us. It's identity theft. So if you're taking notes tonight, you can write down, identity theft is the title of my sermon tonight. And identity theft is a scary thing to think about. Has anyone actually in here ever experienced any form of identity theft? Woo, more people than I would hope. (laughs) It's terrifying. The idea that somebody could not just take on your identity, but really the scary part is, they can wreck your credit. They can spend your money. They can take on your who you are and and it's a terrifying thought to have. And if you've ever been through it, you know the lack of control, the loss of control in that situation. It's terrifying. So identity theft is the title of my sermon tonight. And I have plenty of time, which is awesome. So I'm just going to pray and, and enter us into uh, just a time of sharing. God, we just thank you tonight, Father. We thank you, God, that you are a God that sees the details of our lives. God, you're a God that cares about our identity, that speaks continually into our identity, God. And we pray tonight that you would convict us if that's what we need tonight, that you would um, encourage us if that's what we need tonight, Father, that you would stir up a new season in our hearts if that's what we need tonight, Father. But God, that you would speak this message through me and that every single person will hear it differently and hear what they need to hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we like participatory moments here at City Life. So I want to ask you guys, how would you describe yourself, your identity, in a couple words? Think like your Twitter, your Facebook profile, or if somebody asked you, like, who are you? What would you say? For me, probably I would identify I'm a pastor's wife and I'm a worship leader. So 
If you just raise your hand and give me a couple things, some people. Wait. Husband, father, and soccer player. All right, somebody else. Anybody? Christian. That's good. Nerd. <laughs> that's a good one. Anybody else want to speak up? It could be part of your personality. It could be joyful. It could be just an attribute of you. Anybody else? Colorful. Stephanie Smith back there. Awesome. That is totally a word to describe her. So my second question, I think because we, no matter how good we are at these things that we say, we're a nerd or we're an engineer or we're a mom or we're a husband, we can compare in our lives. It's just, it's just our flesh. It's just the truth. And I think in that comparison, no matter how good we think we are, we look at either a peer in our life, someone that's in the same circle as us, or a movie star or some sort of person that's famous and we can compare. So I want to know, what is your weakest Google moment? So by this I mean you were just feeling down about yourself and you just went to Google and you typed in Google images, celebrities with a lot of cellulite, or, or, or movie stars that are really handsome and under 5'10". So would anybody be bold enough? Or if you don't like, if, if you like, we're trying to find out if your rash was contagious, don't share that. That's a little too incriminating. But if somebody would, would be willing to share, you, sometimes you've been insecure, you've gone to the internet to find just relatability or comfort. Anybody? DIY fails, like Pinterest fails. Like, I want to see where somebody else messed up because this is, seems impossible. Anybody else? Mom fails. You're like, I feel like I'm failing as a mom, and I just want to know that other people are too. Anybody else? So you can, like, compare your size, like, see if you're, like, around the same size as they are. All right, any men? Any men want to share? Are you guys not as insecure as us women are? Okay, probably. That's true. (laughs) Anybody else want to share before we move on? Just get it out there. Just just feel like, okay. All right, well, mine was the cellulite one. So at times where I'm feeling my weakest, and I've tried bathing suits on at Target, I just go and I type a little Google images, and it makes me feel better at myself. So um, me and my husband were served in youth ministry for about 10 years, and then we were on staff for four years at Newport News. So something that happened to me as a youth growing up and to youth as we brought them to camp was that if you were dating somebody that you knew you shouldn't be dating, you were just praying, you were hoping that, that the preacher would not preach on love and relationships. You're like, can this whole camp just be about mercy or grace and don't talk about the fact that I need to break up with my boyfriend? So I know I've personally experienced, and all of our youth, we've experienced that. They start preaching, and you're like, I'm going to have to break up with George. And you know it, when the, and you go home, and you, Jesus told you to break up, so you do it, and you tell him Jesus did, and who knows, you probably got back together with them, and long list of stories. But my hope is tonight that um, in the same way that we w- would just know that we need to break up with that person, that we would break up with insecurities, just wrong thought life tonight, um, break up with self-judgment and pride issues and lies about our identity. So I hope tonight, by the end of this, this sermon, that you feel the need to just break up with those things in your life. So Jesus in the New Testament, he asked one of the most important questions that has ever been uttered in, in, in the history of time, and that was to the disciples, and he said, who do you say that I am? So at first they replied, well, they say that you're this, and will they say that you're that? And so he repeats himself, no, who do you say that I am? And then they reply, the Son of God. And so I think tonight we have to answer that question for ourselves. Who, who do we say that Jesus is? But I think in that acknowledgement, God's also asking us about our identity. In the same way Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking of us tonight, do you know who I say that you are? 
And I think that's the, one of the second most important questions. We need to know who Jesus is, and we need to know that who we are in Jesus. So God's asking of each and every one of us tonight, who do I say that you are? Not who does the world say that you are, not who does, you know, the feelings, you feel like you're feeling in motherhood. Who, who does society say you are? Who does Facebook say that you are? Who does God say that you are? So Matthew 5, 5, the message version, it says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's when you'll find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And I love that it says you're, when you're content with just who you are, no more and no less, not what somebody else has in a part of yourself, not a little less than this and a little more than this, no more and no less, just who you are. In the world, it echoes this. You know, motivational speakers, they say, be who you are, be just who you are. And it's totally different coming from a perspective of God. You know, who you are in God is different from who you are in the world. And our culture, our culture, it tells us what we do, our performance makes up who we are. That's what society says about us. You know, as women in our society, even as men, our, our productivity choices, they're highly scrutinized. If we decide to be a stay-at-home mom, then there's this perception of laziness. And we decide to be a career mom, then there's a perception that our kids are not going to get enough time with us. And they're going to be with a babysitter, and they're going to miss out. And every choice that we make is polarizing opinions or either direction, whether you, whatever you choose. And, you know, you can try everything that culture tells you to. You can try the stay-at-home mom, and then you can try to have a career, and you can try to, to do both. You can try to be everything, but you're never going to find your identity in those things because um, culture is going to tell you what you should do and explore, and you could go travel the world. You could go see every country and, and mark everything off your bucket list, and you can still be caught with the question, who am I? And that's a scary thought because culture nowadays, society, it tells us who we are. It tells us based on our decisions, based on what we choose as a career, if we choose to be at home, that's who we are. You know, when we, with this first question we had that says, describe yourself, most of us said, you know, some sort of thing where it's a career, or I'm a pastor's wife, or I'm a worship leader, and I know, and I love that Anthony said I'm a Christian, and I think most times our last thought is we're a child of God. We're, we're chosen, we've been given grace and mercy. And so I think about two women, you know, when I think about just personality choices, when they say, you know, some of you might have thought, I'm a doer, I'm relational, I'm a giver. There's so many different personalities within that. But Martha, when we think about Martha and Mary, Martha, she kicked it in a high gear. She was doing, she was serving, she was cooking, she was cleaning, she was doing all the things that a host should be doing. And then Mary, you know, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, how many of you would relate to Martha? You'd rather be doing me. I would rather be doing, I would rather not sit down and talk and be, have a relationship. I would rather be doing. Now, how many of you guys can relate to Mary, where you'd rather be sitting and talking and having a conversation? It's kind of even, I would say. Um, so, there's doers and prayers, and there's relational people, and there's task-oriented people, and I'm definitely a, a task-oriented person. Honestly, I can say, and I've been working on this and will continue to be working on this, but I would say the relationship doesn't matter as much as long as we get the task done. And then other people would say it doesn't matter if we get the task done as long as the relationship is, is intact. So it's so different. And there's nothing wrong with doing. There's nothing wrong with serving and working or either at home or in a career. But if our very foundation isn't found in listening to what Jesus has to say about who he is and who we are in him, we'll never find full fulfillment or full identity. And we have a, a lesson to learn from Mary because she sat and listened what Jesus had to say. 
She was learning more about who she was in God. And, Mar- and Martha, sometimes it can be uncomfortable and we want to be a Martha and we want to go and we want to do because we don't want to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he has to say about us. We don't want to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to the, the ways he's challenging us and correcting us. And it's so much easier to do. And for me, honestly, doing is a cop-out. It's, it's I want to do so that I don't have to emotionally invest. I don't have to, to plug myself in and be exhausted. I can just do while everyone else is sitting and having a relationship. And... Um, I think it's funny that there's, there's no mention of husbands or mates or children or social status or career. There's no places that show why Mary chose what she chose and why Martha chose what she chose. It doesn't, maybe Martha was a stay-at-home mom and maybe Mary worked. or you, It doesn't tell us why, um, but they both loved Jesus and they followed him. And so if you're a doer or a prayer or a relational then you constantly are having to work on, for me, I'm constantly having to work on relationships and having to work on making sure that I'm not just doing a task if someone's at my house, sitting down and talking with them instead of cleaning and making sure the house is clean. And um, I want to take a quick look into identity, what the Bible says about who we are. And as I'm reading these, I want you to just, it's so easy to think these things for other people and to really believe these are true, but believe them about other people, what the Bible says. It seems like a general overview. It's not really about me individually. And so as I'm reading these, I just want to challenge you to think about this for yourself. Um, It says in Ephesians 2.10, we're a masterpiece. And these are up on the screen if you want to write these references down for later. It says we're a masterpiece, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It says we're a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. It says we're called to a different standard, 1 Samuel 16.7. And this is when um, Samuel's been tasked to choose the next king. And David's really not even in the lineup. And he's looking at all of his older, taller, more handsome brothers. And he says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And something I want to say to you tonight is people are going to look at what you do, the choices you make, whether you decide to formula feed or breastfeed or stay at home or be a career mom. People are going to look at you and the choices you make, but we're called to a different standard. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. He looks at your heart and he sees your heart and he knows that you want the best for your kids and that's going to look different for every single person. So it also says, we're children of the Most High. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. It says in Psalms 139, 13 through 14, we're carefully planned. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. So I think sometimes we know that we know that God's works are wonderful, but do we know that we're wonderful? Do we understand that we're a part of that creation, that God didn't make any mistakes? So I want to challenge you tonight to think of that. When, when you read that, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. That means I'm wonderful. Regardless of the bad decisions I've made or regardless of the bad decisions that are to come, I'm wonderful because God has made me and his works are wonderful. So it says, in Psalm 139, 16, we're predestined. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And the last one, it's 
Romans 3.23. It says, we're born into sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's confusing to us. How can we be both be born into sin and all these things that the Bible's saying about us? And the simple answer to that is Jesus. It's God's grace. It's Jesus dying on the cross for us, not based on our own merit, not based on the fact that we deserve it. There's a quote by, it's Madeline LeEngle. It's, her last name is L-E-N-G-L-E. And it says, in a very real sense, not one of us is qualified, but it seems that God continually chooses the most unqualified to do his work to bear his glory. If we're qualified, we tend to think we've done the job ourselves. If we're forced to accept our evident lack of qualification, then there's no danger that we will confuse God's work with our own or God's glory with our own. And I love that. It says, it seems God continually chooses the most unqualified to do his work. I know for us stepping into adult ministry, we felt unqualified. We're some of the youngest people in our leadership team, and we felt unqualified. But usually it's that's when God calls you, when you feel like, I don't want to do this, because he knows that you're going to have a humble heart in serving, and he knows that you're going to be brought to your knees time and time again, because you're not qualified to do the work. But time again, he chooses the unqualified, the ordinary, to bear his glory. And each and every one of us, even if we're not called to lead in a ministry, we're called to bear his glory. We're called to bear his glory every day, on the streets, when we're walking, in the grocery store, every interaction we have. So we did a life group called Thriving in Babylon. It was by Larry Osborne, and it's talking about Daniel and how God called him to not just survive in the season, but to thrive. And I think a lot of us are probably in seasons where we feel like we're just making it, where we feel like we're just getting by, that we're surviving, and God is calling us to thrive in the season. He knows the circumstances. He knows the lack. He knows the financial um, frustrations. He knows that, but he's calling us to thrive. In this quote, it says, there's no virtue in lack of confidence or self-abasement. If we're handsome and well-qualified to serve in the king's palace, Jesus expects us to know it, to acknowledge it, and to do something with it. We're not to be arrogant and look down on others, but there's nothing to be gained by trying to pretend that we're ugly with a marginal IQ. (laughs) Say that again. There's nothing to be gained by trying to pretend that we're ugly with a marginal IQ. And then this second quote, it says, Biblical humility is willing to be overlooked. It doesn't insist on public honor or acknowledgement, but that's not the same thing as hiding or artificially downplaying our successes. How many of you guys are awkward compliment receivers? You just don't know what to say when people compliment you. If someone compliments me on my outfit, I'm like, I feel the need to tell them the exact day and time and, and how I was feeling and what I had just eaten and the clearance price and, and what day. And it's still there probably, or I got it a long time ago. It's probably still not there. I just go into this, like, rant. It's, it's awkward. And if someone says to me, you did so well in worship, I say weird things like, oh, G- Jesus, glory, like, glory to God. And just instead of saying thank you, it's easier to just say thank you, but it's awkward to receive compliments because we're so used to feeling that we have to earn everything and that's not God's grace you don't have to earn it and that's why it's awkward to receive the grace of God and it's it's the same way that most of us I've learned to just say thank you instead of just being weird and making everything awkward but society has tried to say that you know humility is negative that if you if you are thinking less of yourself it's weak somehow and um, we like to downplay our successes, and, and then also we like to, you know, when we've done really good, when I invite people to church and, and, and do things that I'm really uncomfortable with, I feel like I need to tell people. Like, I feel like I need to shout it from the rooftop. So it's not, it's not, it's willing to be overlooked. And in ministry, if you've ever served in ministry, 
you've been overlooked at some time because you're serving your heart out. You're here all the time. I know like some people like Tyler and Paul, Paul literally played the drums every single week until like two weeks ago. He just was able to sit in a service for the first time and worship with us. And he, it's no one probably said to him, thank you for playing every single week. And Tyler, he's been here at two o'clock every single Saturday, whether he was serving or not, setting up something. And in ministry, you're going to be overlooked at times, but it's willing to be overlooked. It doesn't insist on public honor or acknowledgement, but it doesn't mean you have to hide and artificially downplay your successes. If you know you're good at something, if Jesus expects you to know it, acknowledge it, and do something with it. If you're really good with kids and you're the only one that can calm babies down and you're not serving in the nursery, you should step into ministry in the nursery. You know, if you're on the worship team, if you're not on the worship team and you can kill an electric guitar solo, Get your butt up on the stage and play for worship. God expects you to know it, acknowledge it, and do something with it. And the same for, like, SLT. If you're, if you're great at greeting or you're great at tasks and you know you're good at those things, reach out to somebody and start serving. God wants to plug you in and for you to acknowledge that you're good in those places. So just as culture can more or less redefine humility, culture can try to give us names that define and redefine who we are in him. How many of you guys have had a name change because of just marriage or something that happened? A name change. So my maiden name is Killingsworth. And shout out to my mom. She's here tonight. I love my mom. I found out really early in life that moms are your best friend. And she's been my best friend ever since. We will laugh about things that are not funny at all and be literally crying. But shout out to my mom. And um, <laughs> sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. So when we got married... I debated, you know, keeping Killingsworth because it's undoubtedly a little more unique than white. Um, and they say that, you know, your last name, it speaks to, like, your career. I don't know if our family were hitmen or what Killingsworth. I don't really know what, what that means for our, our history, our family line. But um, his mom's maiden name is T. Thiesen. So when we went to the courthouse to get our marriage certificate, you can't take your phones in. And we look at each other. We didn't know on there was going to be your mom's maiden name. Or we're like, why does that even matter? So we get there, and I look at him, and I'm like, you know how to spell it, right? And he looks at me, like, you know how to spell it, right? And we're like, no, and you don't have your phone. So we're standing there like, we're not going to be able to get married because we don't know how to spell our last name. So we were able to use a phone, but it's spelled... T-E-I-C-H-T-H-E-I-S-E-N. So even for this sermon, I had to go look at it on Facebook because her maiden name's in front of her other one. So I want to share some just kind of hilarious um, name changes and the history of name changes to you. But first, I'm going to take a drink of water. So in July 2008, a New Zealand court stepped in. So they thought this name was so ridiculous, they came into the rescue of this little girl, she was nine years old, and her name was Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. That was her given name by her parents. And it said they changed it because her name makes a fool of the child and sets her up with a social disability and handicap. If you've ever seen somebody that just named their kid a weird name or they ask you your opinion about a weird name, some of us would be like, that's weird, you shouldn't do that, your child's going to get me fun of. Some of us are just like, oh, that's so unique. Isn't that the word we use for everything that's just weird, unique? We're like, oh, your child's name is so unique. And um, so they stepped in so that she wouldn't have a social disability and handicap. Because kids are cruel. Kids are already mean enough. If you have a weird last name, they're going to make fun of you anyways. My mom's maiden name is Green, which is like a normal name. People just thought of weird things to say, Green Bean and 
Kids are just mean. They're going to find a reason, so don't name your kids something crazy because they're going to get made fun of, and it's going to be really sad. But the second one is Christopher Garnett. He became KentuckyFriedCruelty.com. Did you know that you can be a website? So I guess he was maybe a vegan and was really sad at the way they were treating the chickens. So he is KentuckyFriedCruelty.com. This one is kind of admirable. It's um, Steve Crusher. He became In God We Trust. So first name In God, last name We Trust, which I cannot imagine meeting somebody. And they're like, hi, In God We Trust. And I'm like, amen. I would be like, amen, that's awesome. What's your name? In God We Trust. And I'm like, that's awesome. What's your name again? So I'm sure eventually he just said to people, I'm Steve. It's really nice to meet you. (laughs) Admirable, but just puts himself in awkward situations. So the former Jennifer Thornburg, which is a pretty normal name, whose driver's license now reads dissection.com comma cutout. So she wanted to do something to protest animal dissection in schools. So her name is dissection.com comma cutout. So basically cut out animal dissections. This one is so long and so ridiculous. I just honestly can't believe it's real. A teenager, formerly George Garrett, teenager, keep this in mind when I say this, Claimed to have the longest name in the world after he changed his name to Captain Fantastic Faster Than Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, Hulk, and The Flash combined. However, talk about identity issues. I think there's some insecurity going on there. However, he looks likely to have been beaten by Autumn Sullivan, Corbett Fitzsimmons, Jeffries Hart, Burns Johnson, Willard Dempsey, Tunney, Schmeling, Sharky, Carnera Bear, Braddock, Lewis, Charles, Walcott, Marciano, Patterson, Johansson, Liston, Clay, Frazier, Foreman, Brown. Last name Brown. This is a one-year-old whose parents sensibly decided to give her 25 middle names. I just am praying over that child. Lord, we pray for Autumn Brown. (laughs) Father, that she would be able to choose a name, and God, one day you would give her the strength to change it. But I can't imagine. I really hope she doesn't turn out to be some sort of schizophrenic that relates to a different name. Can you imagine? What name would you choose? Like, what middle name? I guess she could just do a different one every day. But talk about identity issues. A sales assistant, this is the last one, and I think probably my favorite one because it's just silly. A sales assistant named Joel Whittle woke up after heavy drinking to find he was not himself as he had changed his name by deed poll to Big Crazy Lester. (laughs) And he said he has no plans to change it back. I don't know that I would change my name back either. That's kind of a cool name. But I want to talk tonight about two women, two moms in the Bible, who really essentially went through an identity crisis. And I think that these stories, yes, they're they're stories of moms, they're stories of women, but they can relate to each of us in a different way. And these women, they learned about identity and humility kind of the hard way. This is Naomi and Sarah. So each of these had these of these women had to ask themselves questions about their identity, and I think they're questions that we need to ask of ourselves tonight. So the first point that I have tonight, the first question for you, is does your identity have grace for who you've been or what you've been through? Does your identity have grace for the things that have happened to you or the poor decisions that you've made that you're suffering the consequences for? Now, this story starts in Ruth 1, verses 3. It's about Naomi. It says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha. I always want to say Oprah because it's one letter off. Let's just call her Oprah for the sake of it. And the other Ruth, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. So she's been left without her husband, 
and now both of her sons had passed away. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And then skipping to verse 19, it says, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. So this is, Ruth decided to stay with Naomi, if you know the story, and Orpah decided to go back with her family members. And Ruth was uh, loyal to the end. And um, so when they got back to the town, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I think for each of us, we can relate to Naomi. I think she became a little bit self-absorbed. She became stuck in this situation, but we can relate to this. We've lost something. We've lost a part of our identity. We've lost somebody in our lives, and we can relate to her. You know, for, um, for all of us that have been through those things, it's either something that's been done to us, an abuse as a child, or something that's self-inflicted, a poor choice that we made, or a choice we made too soon or too late, and we're suffering the consequences of that. But my question for you tonight is, are you over-identifying with that time, with that season? Are you over-identifying it, or does it hold a healthy place in the story of your life? Are you stuck there? Are you still feeling bitter? Are you still holding on to those things? Have you chosen to forgive? And guess what? Some of the things that have been done to us, we will never get an apology for. And there's a quote that says, life becomes much easier when we learn to accept the apology that we never got. And some people will never say sorry to you. If you've been in an abusive relationship with an older person, they may never own up to it. But life becomes easier when you learn to accept that apology and accept God's grace to cover that situation. You know, in our story, I've gone through seasons of over-identifying with the word mother. We're in a process right now with India of adoption, and we are really close to bringing a child home. We're about two to three months away from, from meeting or, you know, seeing a child. We're going to basically get a phone call any day now that says, we got a picture for you, we got a child for you, do you accept the referral or not? And so in our lives, when we first got married, um, we probably waited a couple years and we started having, try, trying to have kids. And my mom, she never struggled with fertility. And I always thought, you know, you figure whatever happens to your mom is going to happen to you. And so we, we walked down this path of infertility. And so we got testing done and the doctors say, oh, there's, they didn't say there's 3% chance that you'll ever get pregnant. They said there's no reason which is one of the most frustrating things. If you've ever dealt with an illness or dealt with some sort of sickness or infertility, for someone to say to you, there's nothing wrong with you. you, you want, you're glad the test results come back, you know, that those things crazy, but it's disappointing because you want to have a reason. We want to have something to blame it on because it's easier that way. And so for me, I've stepped in and out of seasons of over-identifying with this word mom. Ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a mom. I, there's pictures of me as a child just looking over the, the crib at my little cousins and, and playing with baby dolls. And ever since I can remember, I've wanted to be a mom. I wanted to be a wife and a mom. Like careers, whatever, that was maybe happened to make money. But I wanted to be a wife and a mom, and that's what I wanted. And so when we walked through this season and still walking through the season of infertility, man, talk about identity issues. You start to question yourself. Why can't I do what the, the one thing that women are supposed to be able to do? You know, why I got pregnant before, why can't I do this again? My body knows how to do it. So we start to question and, and ask these questions. And I got to a place where I was self-absorbed with my issue. I was self-absorbed with the fact that I couldn't, you know, have a baby of my own. 
And we, you know, adoption isn't like this second, you know, it's not, it's not a secondhand, like, option for us. We knew we wanted to adopt. We thought it would be different. We thought we would have kids and then adopt. So God really flipped it on us. And Lord knows we're going to be traveling to India and I'll probably be pregnant with twins or something. <laughs> but I had to decide in this, in this season, and I'm still walking in this season, and I go back and forth. You know, am I okay if I never have kids? Am I okay if I never have kids naturally? And something somebody said to me is, why are you trying to decide that now? Your story's not over. Why do you feel like you have to decide if you're okay with it or not? Your story's not over. And um, I had to get down on my knees with God in this season. So at one point when I'm really struggling with this, there were about eight or nine women in our church that are pregnant that have beautiful little ones that are walking around now. And both of my sister-in-laws and my sister was pregnant. So I'm like, I feel like God's throwing pregnancies at me, like, can you deal with this one? Can you deal with this one? Can you deal with one more? Or the enemy, whatever it may be. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not naive enough to, to, you know, not consider that God was doing something in that season. He's raising up a generation, and he's bringing children in this world to serve him. It's not about me. But I had to say to God at one point, you know, after the seventh pregnancy announcement, God, it's me and you. You got to show me how to have joy in this season. You have to show me how to choose joy in this season. And God, honestly, he transformed my heart. He transformed my heart, and I was able to choose joy. But I remember one particular instance. It was at my sister's baby shower. And the weight of just all this trying to be okay with it just hit me all at once. And it was at my mom's house, and we were, she was getting ready to come to the house. And I was listening to the song, um, This Is Living. It's a um, young and free song. And it says, waking up, knowing there's a reason, all my dreams come alive. Life is for living with you. I've made my decision. And so I listened to this song in the shower, and I wept. And I'm the kind of person, I don't cry that often. And maybe like every couple months, I get a really good cry in. But um, I, just the weight of not being okay, it just hit me in the shower. And I was weeping, and I could not stop. My sister's on her way, about to be there. And something I, I, I said to God in this season is I never want to steal joy away from somebody else. I never want to steal the joy of motherhood, of pregnancy away from somebody else. It's not about me. So I, I text my mom, you need to come upstairs. I can't stop crying and you need to hug me because I don't know what else will work. But I was able to, to be happy, to get through that moment and to choose joy. But then a couple weeks later, me and my husband um, as my sister was, you know, going into labor, like the week she was going into labor, we suffered a miscarriage. And I tried to tell him when I was, we do the Soap for Hope fundraiser for our adoption, and I tried to tell him when I was, like, unpacking boxes for the Soap for Hope. And he grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said, are you trying to tell me right now that we lost a baby and you're just trying to go through the motions and, and be okay with it? And I had to let myself grieve and let myself identify with miscarriage, let myself identify with that moment. But it didn't change who I was. It didn't shape my name. It didn't change my name. I didn't go and do an application and ask the Lord to change my name to bitter. And for Naomi, she changed her name. God didn't change her name. And Naomi, it means pleasant and agreeable, which was her given name. And in the Bible, names really meant something. You know, we think about, we know the, the meaning of our name, but in the Bible, it meant who you were. And Mara means bitter, and that's the name she chose for herself. It says, after all this, she had been through this heartache, loss, and identity change. Her friends hardly recognized her. Have you guys ever seen somebody in your life? I know I've been with my mom a couple times when she sees somebody from high school, and you just don't, you don't know who they are. You don't recognize them. You're like, they're like, hey, Steph. And you're like, hey, you, because you just have no idea who they are. And they look so different. 
And I think sometimes this can be just genes, and people have good genes, and some people have bad genes, and people get wrinkles before then, or if they smoked or whatever. There's just different reasons. But I think some of it is because people have been through hard stuff. It changes you. It shapes you. You think about the presidencies, you know, Barack Obama at the beginning of the presidency, and it's been eight years, so yes, he's going to age some, but he looks totally different. He looks exhausted. You think of, if you look at pictures of Abraham Lincoln before and after his presidency, he looks worn out. And that, that, those heartaches, those fighting for things and change, it changes the way people look. And um, it's awkward, first of all, because you don't know who they are, but you just wonder what changed in them. You know, what, what happened in their life to change them so much? There's a couple excerpts I've read about Naomi, and one of them, it's by Barry Webb, and it says, Naomi's perception of her condition was distorted by self-absorption. And it's so easy to get self-absorbed. When someone's wronged us, when we feel like someone's hurt us, we want to talk about it. We want to tell somebody. It makes us feel a little less crazy if we're talking about the crazy people in our life. And we, we continue to say, this happened to me, and this hurt me, and I'm suffering these consequences, or whatever it may be. And our perception of our condition, it becomes self-absorbed. We get stuck. We get stuck there because we keep talking about it, and we feel the need to be justified. This other quote, it says, trust is holding on to the name we've been given, not changing it, because we don't like our current circumstances. That's by Skip Moen. It says, trust is holding on to the name we've been given, not changing it because we don't like our current circumstances. So tonight I want to ask you, what self-appointed name changes have you made in your life? It's not that God changed your name, but you're walking through a hard season and you feel like your name is transforming, your identity is transforming, and you've chosen to speak something over your life that God wants to transform. And in this question, does your identity have grace for who you've been and what you've been through? I want you to know that it's your choice to change, to see a new perspective. It's your choice. If you're in your 60s, if in your 30s, if you're in your teenage years, it's not too late to change your perspective. It's not too late to change your mind about who you're going to become. It's never too late. And it's also your choice to not be a victim. It's your choice to say, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to get stuck in this moment, in this season. I'm going to choose to see the good. And choosing joy is a choice. It is not easy to choose joy some days, but it's a choice we have to make each and every single day. So my second question for you is, does, I, does your identity have room for who you're becoming? So does it have room for the character that's being built in you? Does it have room for the transformation God wants to do in your life? For some of us, we're in a much different season than last season. We might have been in a season of abundance, and we walked into a season of wanting. We might have been in a season of, uh, of having kids in our house, and then they moved out, or empty nesters, or new moms, where we used to get sleep, and we don't get any sleep anymore. So this is Sarah's story, and it starts in Genesis 17, verses 15. It says, God also said to Abraham, ask for Sarah, Sarai, your wife. You are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that you can be the, she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to me, a man of 100 years? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? It says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And he's talking about Isaac. So in the second part, it's talking about Genesis 18, verse 9. It's talking about Sarah's perspective. And basically, it's summed up. She says, am I, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And you can kind of hear the sarcasm in her voice. Really, God? 
After I've given up on this dream, now I'm old and crotchety, and you're going to give me a son to carry around. My back hurts. I'm tired. I'm old. I don't want to do this. And I'm sure she was happy with this, but she laughed. You know, have you ever been something in your life that's so crazy, it's so out of the box, it hurts so much that you just laugh? You're like, really? And I know for my mom, you know, she had me and my sister, and she had no challenges with that. And then she tried for 10 years for my little brother. And so at one point, she just was tired of trying. She dyed her hair. She went back to the gym, and she was in an aerobics class, and she got nauseous, and she realized she was pregnant. And she's like, really, God? Really, once I've given up? And so often, that's how God does it. Once we lay it down, once we don't try to do it our way, God gives us the desires of our heart. So Sarah, God changed her name. Sarai means quarrelsome, and Sarah means lady, princess, and noblewoman. And noblewoman, that speaks to the fact that she was going to be a mother of generations to come. Genesis 17, 18, it says, well, before I say that, I want to tell you that no reason is given why Sarah remained child, childless, barren for a really long time. It doesn't say because he was trying to show character, or he was trying to delay a promise so it would be better. It doesn't say why. But it says in Genesis 17, 18, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham at the very time which was spoken. And something I want you to know tonight is there's not a moment of waiting. There's not a moment of anything in your life that God hasn't ordained, he hasn't planned, he hasn't prepared you for. There's not a moment. Not for a moment has God forsaken you. Not for a moment has he forgotten the plans that he spoke over your life. I just want to invite the worship team to come back up. And in closing, I just want to read a story to you. It's from Acts 3, 2 through 11. It starts in verse 2. And it says, At the same time, there was a man crippled from birth being carried up. Every day, he was set down at the temple gate, the one named Beautiful. He asked for a handout. Peter, with John at his side, looked at him straight in the eye and said, Look here. He looked up, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, I don't have a nickel to my name, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, walk. He grabbed him by the right hand and pulled him up. In an instant, his feet and ankles became firm. He jumped to his feet and walked. Everybody there saw him walking around and praising God. They recognized him as the one who sat begging at the temple gate, beautiful, and rubbed their eyes, astonished, scarcely believing what they were seeing. The man threw his arms around Peter and John, ecstatic. All the people ran up to where they were at Solomon's porch to see it for themselves. And I believe tonight, so many of us were sitting at a temple gate named Beautiful. We're sitting at a temple gate to us what's beautiful, to us what's lovely and perfect. And we're asking for a handout. We're asking God to give us something that will make us whole and rich and beautiful and to stop the hurting, when God wants to heal us. We're crying, fix it. Fix this wrong place in my life. Fix my wrong thinking. Fix my lack of compassion for people, whatever it may be. And God wants to, God not just wants to fix it, he wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to heal the broken places in our life that have caused us to have insecurities and wrong thought life and things that have been done to us or decisions that we've made. So tonight, are you over-identifying with a moment or season in your life? You're stuck and you can't get past it. Have you not forgiven people in your life that have wronged you and you'll never get an apology? 
Does your identity have grace for who you've been, for what's been done to you? And does your identity have room for who you're becoming and the character God wants to build in you? I'm gonna read this poem to you guys. It's by Shannon Alder, and I'm gonna kind of paraphrase it because it's really long, but it says, you chose, you chose, you chose. You chose to give away your love, to have a broken heart, to give up or to hang on. You chose to react, you chose to feel insecure, you chose to feel anger, you chose to fight back. You chose to have hope. And hope is one of the hardest things to have sometimes because it means we can be disappointed. It says, you chose to be naive, you chose to ignore your intuition. You chose to ignore advice, you chose to look the other way. You chose not to listen. You chose to be stuck in the past. You chose your perspective to blame, to be right, your pride and your games. You chose your ego, you chose your paranoia to compete. You chose your enemies and you chose your consequences. You chose, you chose, you chose. However, you are not alone. Generations of women in your family have chosen. Generations before you have chosen. Women all around the world, men all around the world have chosen. We've chosen at one time in our lives and we stand behind you now screaming. Choose to let go. Choose dignity. Choose to forgive yourself. Choose to forgive others. Choose to see your value. Choose to show the world that you're not a victim and choose to make us proud. Before you chose anything, God chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, it says, Even before he made the world, God loved us. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before the world was formed, God chose you. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by giving us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gave him great pleasure to choose you. God didn't choose you based on your merit, but based on his mercy. The world defines you by your performance. It defines you by your choices. It defines you by the consequences you're living in as a mother, as a worker, as a friend, as a boss. But God defines you as his child, not based on performance, not based on what, what you've done, but based on what Jesus did on the cross. Based on his decision that he made before the world even began. God doesn't choose us based on our merit, but based on his mercy. And maybe you've chose the wrong path again and again. Let your identity have grace for who you've been and what you've been through. And maybe there's some weighty choices on the horizon for you. Let your identity have room for who you're becoming in God. Let your choices in your life flow from who you are, not who you are in the world, who society tells you you are, but who you are in Jesus. Let your identity be found in listening to what God has to say about who he is and who we are in him. If you just wanna stand, we're gonna enter into worship. Let these questions fuel your future. Let your identity have grace for who you've been and what you've been through. And let your identity have room for who you're becoming. So tonight as we enter in this song, we're gonna sing, Oh Come to the Altar. And I just wanna invite you, if you're dealing with these insecurities, if you're wrestling with these questions and you haven't perfected it because none of us have, you can join us in the altar or you can step out of the pews and and worship there. But think of those things in your mind and take an intentional step to lay them down at the feet of Jesus. Don't pick them back up. 
lay down that unforgiveness, lay down that wrong thought life, lay down the negative thinking. God wants to work those things out in our life. We're sitting at a temple gate named Beautiful that we are comparing to, and God wants to not just fix us, to fix it, a temporary band-aid. He wants to heal us inside out, forever changed. So as we worship tonight, I just encourage you to think on those things, to lay them down at the foot of the cross and not pick them back up. Let's worship together.